Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport, the home of cycling in association with Lacquer Bicycle Insurance. I'm Graham Wilgos. Brad, we've waited five months for some World Tour racing action. The riders have waited five months. We're back. We are. And it's good to be back, isn't it? It is good to be back. Um, and joining us this week, GCN's own Daniel Lloyd. Thanks for having me. Dan, well, thank you for coming on. And on, on the day that, uh, that Strada Bianchi became the first World Tour race in five months to be raced, we have the only Brit ever to have finished in the top ten. Uh, Am I correct in saying I that? I think so. I think, I'm not sure Scott Thwaites might have finished 10th. I don't remember. But ah, so you're the highest place. I think I'm Brit. the highest place Brit still to this day, which um, With it, a... I'll, take, I'll take. I haven't got much to shout about from my career, but that's one of the <laughs> things I can. So still. it was, a, it was a, a ninth place finish in between, sandwiched in between. Uh, Andy Schleck and Ryder Hesjedal. Yeah, good company you were keeping. Yeah, I, yeah I, it was one of those days where I actually felt quite good um, yeah. and, and got a top 10 result. It didn't happen much for me, but... Uh, that was one but of them. There we are. You got yeah. run off the road, didn't you, in the last 10K? Yeah, I got run off the road and into a ditch. Do you think uh, you would have got higher up? I probably would have won, Brad, to be honest, yeah. if, I, if that hadn't been That's the case. Right. But um, No, I got run off the road and I sort of had to make an effort to get back onto the group that I was in and then didn't really have much left for the finish climb into Siena. Well, we'll come back to that because there's, there's a lot to talk about from today's race. Uh, however, our third guest, our star guest, if you will, the world famous oh, Manny Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> Founder and manager of one of the fastest growing cycling clubs in the world, the Black Cyclist Network. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming on. On greatest achievements, actually, or this might be among your greatest achievements. It might not. You competed in the 2019, last year's African Games in the, in the cycling road race against Daniel Tekleheimanot, among others, as yeah. well as, as Chris Froome's mentor, David Kinja. Yes, yes. And you've got to mention Nathaniel Bahani who was the only black African to actually compete in the Tour de France. Cofidis is Bahani, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining <laughs> us. Brad, we should also say eight years to the day, because we're recording on Saturday, the day of Strada Bianchi, Saturday the 1st of August, eight years since. Yeah, yeah. I drove over the Kingston Bridge this morning, actually, to get, not Kingston Bridge, uh, Hampton Court Bridge. Hampton Court Bridge. Um, so you were cruising through Hampton Court on your way to Olympic gold in the, in the race. Eight years ago, yeah. Time trial. Life's never been the same since that day. Yeah. What, yeah. what was your, what was your, uh, one of your famous phrases from it? You feathered it at how many watts? No, I didn't feather it. The last 5K, <laughs> I said I was feathering 500 watts for the last 5K. Feathering 500 In my insecurity, watts. thinking I was going to lose a time trial, I thought that Tony Martin could somehow take 29 seconds back from me with 5K to go. That's the life you live on the edge as an elite athlete. But. Yeah. Still living life on the edge after, uh, no. after lockdown has been lifted? No, 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 no. My greatest... Put, execution of a race on a bike that day mm. and it's probably my defining moment i can't believe it's eight years so. and the social change you know when i see from that day how cycling is now perceived not just because of me but a lot of people you know it's one of the reasons manny in it you know 
why you've probably seen the biggest change in London, really. I mean, you told me this morning you had 100 cyclists turn up for the BCN ride in Regent's Park. Yeah. You know, I used to ride around there in mid-90s during the day. I'd be the only cyclist around there other than the cycle couriers maybe commuting. And it's incredible. They've changed in 25 years. Manny, how do you manage that? A hundred <laughs> riders turning up to Regent's Park. Presumably you don't do it all in... Well, he got in trouble this in morning one from, Regent, the, from the park. Got told him off. <laughs> You're on their radar now, mate. Yeah, I got I got told off for apparently sort of breaking the rules around gatherings. I think you have you know you can't gather more than thirty people in one particular sitting. So yeah, it's it's one tricky one to navigate around, but we're working on it. And at the moment, the way we sort of deal with it is I've got um, eighteen ride captains who have sort of trained up in the last twelve months. They were literally sort of fresh to cycling, and now they are able to sort of like manage groups. And, you know, do rotating turns, hot seat, and so perform drills. And it's just amazing to see. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's really just, just been going from strength to strength. You know, on Regis Park, sorry, when I used to no, ride no, around. Just a quick one on Regis When I used to ride around there in the mid-90s, there's a Cinder athletics track there, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was an Olympic athlete who used to train there when I was riding around called Dwayne Ladejo. Remember Dwayne Ladejo? I, I don't remember. I don't, yeah. He was a decathlete and a 4 by 400 meter runner. Yeah, and he used to train on the Cinder track at Regis Park. Do you yeah. still keep in touch? No, but I did tell him that 10 years later when I did uh, Superstars in La Manga, and he did it. And then he was a gladiator. He became a gladiator. Amazing. On the show. Brad, I, I must say, you almost got my mum wanting to get on a time trial bike. Yeah. That's the kind of influence she had. She calls me her boyfriend, <laughs> actually. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, oh, my boyfriend, Bradley. <laughs> So, it, it's in danger of descending already. Manny, save us. Tell us about the Black Cyclist Network. Brilliant. Um, thank you. Black Cyclist Network is basically an inclusive group. I set it up um, back in 2018, October 2018, to just be a space where um, riders, black and brown riders, can just come together um, to ride. Just a, just a space where they can feel comfortable, a welcoming space where they, come, they can come learn about cycling for those that are sort of new to cycling. It's just like a sort of breaking down the barriers for, for riders who have some trepidation about joining regular cycling club. It's just an opportunity to come to a space to join people who look like them. Mm. Um, and the idea really was to sort of connect with people who are experienced riders, but then also to sort of create pathways for people that were interested in, in taking up cycling. When we were talking earlier, you likened it to having the right infrastructure to encourage cycling in yeah. London, for example, as in there was this groundswell of people just waiting to ride, but they didn't feel like they had either the sense of belonging or the right opportunity to do so. Is that fair? Yeah, that, that's very accurate. Like a lot of the people that join us quite often, you know, they're more experienced than me. They say to me, like they'll come up to me and say, how long have you been riding for? They say, oh man, you've been riding for 20 years. I'm like why have you not joined your local cycling club? And they're just like, well, I just did not feel like I belonged. Yeah. So with BCN, we're just giving them the opportunity yeah. to actually come in. And there's, there's a cultural element to it as well. I'll compare it to football, you know, cycling and football. There's a slight difference there. It's like when you're from, you know, the, my community, it's like you understand the culture of football. You know what the dressing room looks like. You know what happens there. But with cycling, it's not necessarily at the forefront. That You know, it's not discussed much. So... You don't really know what to expect. And I think that's what holds a lot of people back because they fear how they're going to be perceived yeah. when they enter that space. The story you told me this morning about the, the kids that came from Hackney this morning. Yeah. Tell me about that. <laughs> that. That was actually, um, I think it was last week, we had some kids that came over from Hackney and they were, you know, they're keen cyclists, but they just do not like, they wouldn't wear Lycra. They couldn't wear the Lycra because of the... <laughs> 
the, how it's perceived. You know? Yeah, I don't know exactly what it's like. Well, so yeah, your own experience, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, from Kilburn, we're trying to come out of the council state through fear of you losing your life from wearing lycra in the nineties. You know, obviously it's a bit different now, but kids from Hackney and those, you know, they're dealing with different social environments. A lot of it's peer pressure and fitting in, mm. and and if they want to steer away from that. The bigotry surrounding it of, of wearing lycra kids coming out of Hackney, certain parts of Hackney, without something like what Manny's doing at the moment, they would never have tried it probably cycling because of what Manny yeah. was saying of, of not fitting in anyway. And with certain elements of the sport at the moment, particularly in London, you know, surrounding certain clothing labels and things like that, there's quite a snobbery and it's very exclusive. And it doesn't yeah. it's not for everyone. And I think like Manny's saying, I think that's what's so brilliant about what he's doing is Aside from race and everything like that, it's a um, it's another option for people that wouldn't normally get access to cycling. Yeah, I think the the other aspect is I I want people within the you know Black Asian minority ethnic community to see cycling as a as a cool thing. So I'm trying to change that culture around it. You know, whereas previously they look at cycling, they go, Ugh, you know, what are you doing riding a bike? Come on, get a life. Now I just want people to actually see that there is a health benefit to cycling. To me, you know, cycling is like the best of both worlds. It's a combination of probably riding a motorbike and, and running. You get to cover long distances and you also get to stay fit. It's just perfect. And anyone can do it because it's a low impact sport. So it's not as damaging on your knees. It's just perfect really for, and it's a lovely way to sort of commute to work and stay, stay in shape. And we're seeing like literally today, I was at a rally, you know, celebrating Black Pound Day which is an event that's been put together. So it's a recognition of just celebrating and you know trying to empower Black-owned businesses. We had thousands of people, cyclists, turn up in Walthamstow for this event. And so, you know, and I liken it to that whole thing about building the infrastructure. When we were discussing setting up um, cycling infrastructure, segregated bike lanes, everyone was saying, well, they're not going to use it. Why are we trying to build a mini Amsterdam in London? It's not going to work. But as soon as it was done, you see people flock to it. And so we're just trying to create that space. A lot of people just want that cue to be able to do what they, what they want to do. But unfortunately, it's not out there for them. And that's where we come in. And it's it's born out of your own experience, am I, am I right in saying, yeah. of, of going along to cycling clubs as a younger man, yeah. you're still a young man, and finding that because cycling is such a traditional sport and it's full of all these little etiquette um, principles that, that that seem so important. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, they're the, the least important of the of the least important things, really. Uh, but, you know, your own experiences, you've, you've been along and then you found because of, of all these things that are expected of you that you don't know about on top of the fact that you're a black man, you found that oh, I, don't, I just don't feel a sense of belonging here at all. Yeah. Um, and it's out there and it's not necessarily intentional. Sometimes I just feel like it's a self-preservation sort of mentality that leads to that kind of snobbery. So when you go to cycling clubs, um, the usual reaction you get is people will sort of, I would say, like, they'll download you. They'll look at you up and down. They'll look at what kind of bike you're riding, you know, how slim you look. You know, do you look pro? That's the, that's the sort of, like, the, the, the thing they look for. And then they're doing that because, the, you know, they're trying to see if you're safe enough, you're experienced enough to be able to ride with that group. They're putting their safety first. And I think that's what, you know, generally like good hearted people are trying to do. But in doing that, you end up sort of marginalizing a lot of people. So if, like I imagine when I first started out, I didn't exactly know, you know, what the dress code was and I wasn't really in tune with the etiquette and stuff mm. like that. So if I came along to a ride, for example, and you see me like you'd think, oh, you know what? He's a crash waiting to happen. 
And that's that sort of like that discrimination that takes place. So when did you start cycling? I started cycling in 2009, but I joined my first club in 2013. That's yeah. when I actually started. You know, I always say, yeah. like they're cycling alone and then there's cycling at a club. You learn the most when you're at a cycling club. It's 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 a, it's a what, rite of passage. What was your first memory of cycling in terms of watching it on the TV or what inspired you to get into it? You. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Did you know the answer to that before? No, I didn't. Yeah, no. no, I didn't. No, no, no. But, um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Was it road or track? Or and it was both actually. It was um, yeah. you and Chris Hoy? I think you know, twenty twelve. You just captured you know the mm. whole nation's imagination, mm. and you actually captured my imagination as well to get into cycling. because the previous year, twenty eleven, is like when I actually properly started cycling. Yeah. Um, three friends of mine managed, that I work with managed to talk me into doing a ridiculous ride from London to Copenhagen to raise money for charity. And that was my first real experience that sort of long, long distance riding. Yeah. And we did it in about 11 days. But afterwards, I just remember just, you know, missing, longing for that feeling of just running around in the countryside, just feeling that inertia wind blowing through your hair, smelling that lovely sort of, you know, countryside oh. air and, and the funk. <laughs> you ride every day, don't you, as well, pretty much? I try to, but I've not really been riding much uh, for the past month or two just because oh. i'm trying to get sponsors for the black cyclist network race team what about your day job um i'm a civil servant yeah um and i'm quite lucky in, in the sense that um a lot of people are getting furloughed but fortunately for me i've been able to sort of work from home yeah 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 how's it going getting the sponsors um, i must say gonna give a shout out to science and sport because they were the first ones to come on board they realized the potential of what we're trying to do we've set up the first black asian minority ethnic race team and we're going to be launching the coming coming months, um, and we'll be racing next year. Um, at the moment, we're going to be racing on the amateur circuit, but the plan and ambition is to, you know, become pro conti and go up to pro level. And the whole idea, concept behind the Black Cyclist Network is to really create pathways for riders of color from the grassroots all the way up to the elite level. And that's what the main mission is. And at some point, we're also looking to create a women's team. You might have a big DS for that team, eh? Is that right? <laughs> Brad, if you would, I would love to have you make a well, comeback, we mate. Yeah, we spoke about it. <laughs> Could you imagine? Return of the Mac. If I'd ever come back for one team, it'd be that team. It's on the record now as yeah. well. So, Manny, and talking of the future, actually, so, you know, we, we, we know we can educate ourselves better yeah. as, as to how we can start to change things. So there was the diversity in cycling report that yeah. your friend Andy Edwards put together and that British Cycling put its name to they hit upon a number of things that, that can be done within yeah. cycling and, and, and how we look at cycling in this country to be able to start to make a positive change. Now, I know you've done your homework, so I'm going to put yeah. you on the spot and ask you. Uh, so what can we do apart from educating ourselves in terms of, and I'm talking promoting accessibility, all these things we've, we've spoken about, being inclusive, promoting visibility brilliant um so that report in itself you know many thanks to, to andy it was a grassroots project that came out of a conversation that i had with andy back in 2018 and it's you know f from that we've had really wonderful conversations with the black cyclist network that's actually ended up contributing to that perspective of just bringing a new sort of perspective within the cycling community so um, off, off the back of that, some of the things that with recommendations that we're looking into, it's not just for cycling clubs, but also the whole sort of cycling sort of universe and community. So in terms of cycling clubs, um, recommendation, we've got, you know, promoting visibility, accessibility, making sure you're telling more than one story. So 
in a sense of when we talk about promoting visibility, what does that mean? Well, you know, one one quick fix is making sure that if you've got members of color, you know, you put them out there on your websites, you make sure they get influential roles within your club. So uh, just make them an ambassador to be able to recruit other members of color. Because when it comes down to it, really, if it's something as simple as that has a huge impact. Being able to see something in front of you and be like, oh, you know what? That is actually another person of color makes a massive difference. So one of the things that when I started cycling, if, you know, I would go to cycling websites, for example, and if I'd seen a person of color, that would have just made that click for me all of a sudden, just like, oh, the realization that actually, yeah, you know, it's a welcoming space. And that's something like that. It goes with women as well, makes a huge difference. That's one aspect of it. Um, and for companies, it's a matter of trying to get, you know, more BAME people reflected within your organization. And quite often what you find with companies is a lot of like clothing brands are happy to put black faces on their website. But in terms of the organizations internally, there aren't any, you know, diversity there. And I think it's really important to have those sort of, you know, diverse voices within, within your organization. I remember Gucci putting out a ridiculous hoodie which had like a black face red lipstick around it and it's just like well if a person of color was in the organization they would have known straight away that you know you just don't do that sort of thing so it's about doing that as well it's about making sure that when you're actually looking to employ people maybe you know you reach out to black magazines you know uh, uh, black newspapers to try and, you know, to sell your advertising there, to try and appeal to people of colour. Um, so that's, that's, just, that's just one aspect yeah. of the recommendations from the Diversity and Cycling Report. It's obviously very obvious to you, and it's, it'll be very obvious to a lot of people, but why do you call yourself the Black Cyclist Network? Thanks for that. That's a great question. Um, we call ourselves the Black Cyclist Network because no white person is allowed to join us. <laughs> except me. Yeah, except for Randy Wiggins. No, no. We're, we're actually a very inclusive group. The, the, the whole idea for the name is our mission is to try and get more people of colour into cycling. Yeah. So that's why we call ourselves the Black Cyclist Network. In terms of who we are, we're a very you know, mixed bunch. We've got white riders, we've got black riders, we've got Asian riders. Yeah. Um, so it's just a very welcoming atmosphere. So anyone can join us. Man, woman, it doesn't matter what religion you believe, your gender, it doesn't matter to us. Um, but the main focus is to try and get more people of colour to, to enter cycling and to change that whole, the sort of the community and try and get a more cycling oriented community going. Mm. So that's why we call ourselves the Black Cyclist Network. And if anyone at home is thinking about creating a white cyclist network, good on you. But my question to you is, why would you want to create a white cyclist network? Because that's another thing people always ask, like, yeah. how do you call yourself a black cyclist network? How would you feel if I called myself a white, you know, set up a club called oh, white cyclist Because we've network? got millions of them already. But that's the yeah. other thing. It's just like, yeah. you know, it's a question of, okay, okay, so now you've got a white cyclist network. You now set up a club called the white cyclist network. What's the purpose of it? Is it just to be exclusively white? If like, that's white it, people that... <laughs> don't feel that there's a barrier to cross to get into a club or anything like that yeah. already. So I think it's the same as women-only gyms. It's a people that complain about that, isn't it? It's because yeah. because you know a lot of females feel a bit intimidated when they go into a gym that is generally just you know, blokes working out that's and it. they don't want to be around them. And it's the, the demographic same. of cycling always has been up to this point a white sport. Yeah. So a, you know why wouldn't you? That's you know it's just a stupid point to put across. Well, what if I set up a white so? It, it, what I'm saying is it, Bradley? It's like when people say, why, yeah. why do we need a Black History Month? Or every other month for the calendar is why History Month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And have you found that this extra time that we've all had with lockdown, have you found that that's given you a little bit of breathing space in order to to expand BCN? Yeah, it's it's actually been a godsend for me because one of the things that's sort of been keeping me up at night is trying to get the funding, the required funding that we need to set up the race team and to try and really implement some of the outreach programs that we're looking to do. Mm. And it's enabled me to to plan not just the group rides, but actually really have, you know, regular conversations with my ride captains to decide to agree on what we should do. Um, and so the lockdown, yeah, um, has been really helpful in that sense for me. How's lockdown treated you, Dan? Uh, yeah, fine. I mean, I've got really nothing to complain about in, in the situation <laughs> that I was in during lockdown. You know, I was talking to somebody earlier. It's very different. I think if you're if you've been on your own for many weeks on end trying to cope with lockdown versus being with, with a family, etc. So, yeah, I've got nothing to complain about at all. Brad, you had a little um, British champions ride. Mm. Yeah, we did. Friends uh, ride. Yeah, it was, we call it the Jolly Boys Outing. The next pro group. <laughs> <laughs> My son came on it as well. And um, yeah, I mean, it was just brilliant. We rode from South End to Whitstable. We stayed over in Whitstable and rode back the next day. Uh, the first day took us 12 hours to get there. Three hours riding time <laughs> with four pub stops. <laughs> so that was that was yourself, Matt Stevens, yeah, Adam Blythe, Steve Cummings, Steve A. Cummings, yeah. But there was a Stuart Clapp as well who works for Roulette Magazine and a, yeah. another guy who works for Chapter Three. And it was just yeah, we'd planned it for a long time. We'd always wanted to do something like that, particularly me and Steve who'd grown up since juniors together. Steve only just retired, you know, so it's, it was quite nice to do something that we have never done before and enjoy cycling socially like most people do. That you forget sometimes an elite athlete that. You know, I came through social cycling and cycling club like Manny was talking about and, um, you know, stopping at CAFs and things like that is the biggest part of that. But I ended up never doing that as a professional because it becomes a job and becomes a chore, you know, mm. everything you've got to do. And uh, it was nice to experience the other side of the fence where you could enjoy cycling and, you know, racing in between up little climbs and things which we were doing. We had bags strapped under our saddles with our clothes in for the night, dealing with punches on the way. Um, Did, have, I, have I got this right? Matt Stevens fixed a puncture with a business card. That was my puncture. It was your puncture. Yeah. Because I still haven't got out of the habit of other people doing my stuff. So I never fixed my puncture. Matt did it for me. Yeah. I, so, when I say it's amazing, it's amazing that Matt Stevens is still carrying business cards. Yeah. <laughs> and we all agreed to wear national champs jerseys. Those of us were national champs. And those, mine didn't fit me still. So I had to wear a Team Wiggins one. Um, but it was, <laughs> it was just great. And we're going to do it again in a couple of weeks. I think we're doing Brighton next time. You said it's the first time you've ever done a ride like that because from from the outset when you started riding as a youngster, yeah. you had goals which were yeah. performance-oriented. Yeah, exactly. And so you don't get the opportunity to just no. go out and ride with friends and enjoy it very much. No, and the only time we ever stopped at CAFs um, professionally when we were in teams and things was normally the day before a race or something for a coffee, you know. Um, very rarely do you do the club cycling scene thing where you do a ride and halfway through you stop at a cafe, you know, which was pretty much the pedigree and growing up during the club scene when I was a kid and it was the norm to stop at a cafe. Um, but that was soon taken away and you basically, if you're out for five hours, you're out for five hours and you came back. There was no extra hours sitting in the cafe with families and things. So um, it allows you to enjoy. I mean, and also where I've lived in the past, and I, there was never a lot of cyclists around me that I knew or were friendly enough with to go and have a social ride. And once I became Bradley Wiggins, you know, you always question why people wanted to ride with you anyway, you know, so you couldn't have proper fun. But to ride with your mates like that, you could be yourself and really have a proper laugh, really. Um, and I was kind of void of all that 2012 onwards because, you know, 
I could never be myself again around sort of normal cyclists and, and live too far away from sort of your friends like Steve Cummins and Adam and that that you've known since you were a kid. So. Well, so we'll come to the race itself shortly, but I want to talk a little bit about how lockdown and how the coronavirus has affected the pro peloton. I think one of the things that struck us all watching the race today was the lack of fans on the sideline, particularly coming into Siena. Uh, I mean, crazy enough. I didn't really notice that. Because I, didn't you? No, no, it's funny you should say that because we were talking about it earlier with the Tour de France and how that's going to work. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I didn't. I never really associated the amount of fans with the race today, Strada Bianchi, because mm. of the long stretches and things. You tend to get large periods where there are no fans, but I guess it will strike us more when I watch something like the Tour of Flanders or um, Paris-Roubaix, but... I'm not sure how that's going to function at the moment and operate, particularly at the Tour de France. But I think the racing took over today more than anything for me mm. watching it, which was which is a good thing. Um, is it strange enough watching Strada Bianchi in August, Dan? Yeah, I mean it was incredibly hot out there for them today, wasn't it? Thirty-seven degrees. degrees, everything. I mean, go back to the crowd thing. I, it didn't look from the very top of that final climb like they weren't allowed to be there because they were in fairly close proximity. But I just wondered whether. You know, normally this is a race that comes at the same weekend as Leroyca and you've got a lot of people that travel in from all over the world to go and yeah. participate, but also some people on top of that that go to just view that race and watch that race on the side of the road. And I think with you know people reluctant to travel at the moment, it, it's far fewer foreign fans on the side of the road. But yeah, it did strike me on the early parts of the climb, but there were still, I guess, the local fans over the top. Yeah, yeah. but I think the fans thing, I mean, certain races are, are associated with large numbers of people, yeah. um, particularly the Tour de France on some of the climbs and summit finishes. And well, I mean, yeah. if we were doing the Alpe d'Huez, you can't imagine them having Dutch corner, could you? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, yeah. I, I, Do you know what I mean? It's like, it, that would be odd. It's going full up. of all sorts of problems. Yeah. Um, and Carrefour de l'Arbre, um, you know, um, Forried Arenberg in, in Paru Bay. It's going to be interesting to see what that's like. But uh, we did see footage at the start today, and that looked like pretty much normal Italian start. The, the commentator was surrounded by people and things. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the next couple of weeks works. I mean, San Remo next weekend, you know, the Poggio and things like that, normally flocks of people. What about the riders? So you've waited five months for proper racing to begin, whether or not you've been sort of on the turbo or on, on Zwift. Uh or, or however you've structured your uh, your downtime, is it is it going to be that much sketchier? That sort of beginning of the season feel again, in that there's nerves in that I, this is the first I time we've ridden so. in the because I think there's while. so much resting on it for so many. Right, you know, if you haven't got a contract beyond the end of this year, I mean, firstly, we're just keeping our fingers crossed that this new calendar can go ahead as planned. Uh, it really feels like a house of cards, you know, that might tumble down at any point and so I think there's a lot of pressure on a lot of riders to to start the season in fantastic form so I was saying to Brad earlier I'd imagine that today's race was the highest level that that race has ever been because everybody now knows how to train really really well yeah. and they've also been you know spending four or five months just watching what other riders are doing on Strava and I think that you know that adds to sort of thinking oh am I doing enough or this person's doing this many hours and Mitch Dock has talked about this recently that Seven hours is the new five because you kind of see like Egg and Bernal in <laughs> Colombia doing seven hours all the time. Think, oh, Christ, I need to do seven hours as well. Or, uh, yeah, and talk about that five months training. You know, you get to the start of the race and you test positive for Corona, which one guy did. Uh, well, so Alex, yeah. Alex Dowsett had to, had to pull out of Burgos, didn't he? Because he had had dinner with his teammate the night before he pulled out. And yeah. His teammate had been really? in close contact with uh, another rider who had who, tested positive. 
So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it just shows doesn't it, how, how delicate it is even now at this situation, at this stage of the game. You know, we almost assume we're, some people get used to thinking we're back to normal now. You know, mm. certainly in daily life, you know, pubs and bars and things like that, you know, standing outside Anfield celebrating Liverpool's win in the league and things like that. There's no social distancing, but it just shows you how delicate and that this still thing is still floating around somewhere. Well, seg- well segued, by the way. Were you, were, you, were you outside Anfield? I wasn't, no. no. I was on that ride to Whitstable. Dan, you mentioned briefly there the, the, the rest of the season. So we, we know the calendar is packed. I'm just going to pull out a few highlights here. Obviously, we started with Strada Bianchi today. Then we've got the Tour of Poland, uh, which starts midweek. Milan-San Remo next weekend. Then the Dauphiné from the 12th to the 16th of August. Shortened race, five stages this time. Then we've got Ride London on the 16th of August. Then comes the Tour de France, 29th of August to the 20th of September. Then Tirreno Adratico, 7th to the 14th of September, overlaps with that. The Bink Bank Tour, 29th to the 3rd, uh, 29th of September to the 3rd of October. Flesh Wallon, 30th of September. The Giro runs between the 3rd and the 25th of October. Liège Baston Liège, 4th of October. Amstel Gold, Ghent Wevelgem, Flanders, then the Vuelta on the 20th of October. And we've got that, that big day, of course, Paris Bay, the same day as the final day of the Giro and the Queen stage of the Vuelta. Is it all going to happen? I think there's a decent chance of it happening in many ways. I know many of the insiders and teams are sort of not expecting it to, to get much further than the Tour de France. I Why think is it, that? Do you think there'll be another outbreak? I or? think it's particularly the doctors within the teams, that, particularly you know something like EF Pro Cycling, who've got American doctors where the, the problem is still much greater than it is in most parts of Europe. I, th- I think what it has highlighted is, is the disparity between different parts of the sport. So unfortunately on the women's side, far more races have fallen by the wayside because of financial problems and perhaps not being able to spend the money uh, to put in every measure that needs to be put in place to put the, the races on. So Bulls, Dorman, uh, Bulls Ladies Tour, should I say, has fallen by the wayside. Then Tour de l'Avenir also yesterday announced that they're not going to have a race this year. And so, you know, it's going to make it more difficult on, on that side of things, unfortunately. And, and it's really difficult to be in the shop window this year as a, as a junior or under 23 that wants to progress up to the pro ranks. But with the bigger money races, you know, they're going to do everything they possibly can to to make sure they are on, of course. And it's quite interesting that a lot of the Tour de France main contenders appear to be sticking with a French, an all-French programme, which is, given the races that we've got, uh, a very feasible thing to do. But, you know, certain races have lucked out. Vuelta Burgos, you know, normally not a race that many people would be watching, but this year it was the first big stage race back, so loads of eyes on it. Route d'Occitanie has got the best start list ever. And then the Tour de Lain, another race where you wouldn't really be too bothered about watching it or if you missed it. But this year, it's got you know, even just Ineos' lineup for that race. They've got Froome, Bernal and Geraint Thomas on the start list. And, and most of the other teams have got very big names too. So some of the smaller races have kind of have lucked out where they sit on the calendar because they've got a lot more attention on them. Manny, what's, what sticks out for you? I just feel sorry for the mechanics. <laughs> You're working double time. <laughs> yeah, they're going to be working overtime. Apart from the tour, I'll say Paris Roubaix. Yeah. That's, that's the one. We talk about Super Sunday, but it's not just Paris Roubaix and the Giro d'Italia stage final one and the welter. It's the first ever women's Paris Roubaix on the same day yeah. as well. I mean, it's going to be, mm. fingers crossed that it goes ahead. It's going to be an amazing. The tour's going to be hard, though. The Tour de France. I mean, my son came on the tour with us last year. They're normally off school, summer holidays. He's back at school when the race is on. So he's kind of moaning about how he's going to watch the race. You know, he doesn't want to watch the roundup. He likes watching it live and stuff. And you think a lot of kids will be back at school where 
you know, it's a shop window to inspire kids to come into cycling as well. So that's going to be strange because lots of families will be back home wherever they are if they've summered, you know, holidayed in, in, in Europe. And you normally plan your holidays around watching the tour somewhere. So that will help the organisation, I guess, from the, the amount of people they have on the roadside in that, which is, is quite good, I guess, from that point of view. But it's going to be a strange race this year for everyone, including us watching it. Well, it's as good a point as any to, to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from the Bradley Wiggins show That's after right. this. Nice. Lacquer's collective cover is made especially for cyclists, for life on and off your bike. Lacquer has flipped outdated traditional insurance on its head with no more fixed upfront premiums. Instead, your monthly contributions are based on the collective's claims that month. Your max monthly price is capped, but the savings are all yours. Plus, 80% of your money goes straight back into the collective, fixing, replacing, and helping. And the other 20% keeps their wheels spinning. It's as simple as that. And when things go bad, Lacquer's got your back. Claims are handled by experts and usually agreed within a day, with no depreciation or excess. They've ditched annual contracts locking you in. With Lacquer, if you want to leave, you can, anytime. Head over to www.lacquer.co where new customers can get £10 credit by signing up today with the discount code WIGGINS. Chaps, we were all excited about today's Strada Bianchi. We'll dive right into the race in just a second. First, here is how Carlton called it for us on Eurosport. Well, he's dealt with the climb. He's taken that famous right-hander. He comes through the twisting streets here and finally the assembled crowds who've uh, managed to get themselves permission to be here will witness one of the finest finishers. As it is, it's been a, a grand tour of some spectacular countryside today, but he's going to take this last turn into the sunshine of the Piazza del Campo. And we are just left to say chapeau, quite frankly, what a ride. He started off as one of the favourites and he has lived up to that billing. Wout van Aert has won the Strada Bianchi. As tough an addition as you're likely to find simply because of the approach to it. And his approach was to take it on. So a 184 kilometre route uh, on the shorter side for a, a one day race. Certainly 63 kilometres, though, of white gravel roads across 11 sectors. Uh, it was a punishing old ride to Siena, Dan, as you said earlier, in 37 degree heat. In the end, Jumbo Visma's Wout van Art came in 30 seconds ahead. What did you make of it today? I thought it looked like one of the hardest races that we've seen for, well, obviously we haven't seen many races for a long time, but it, you know, in years in that edition. I don't think there's probably been a harder edition of, of that particular race. Just when you look at the gap between first and 10th, which was, what, seven and a half minutes yeah. or so? I mean, that's a huge gap when you've got that many top riders all in one race. And, you know, once the live coverage started, once RCS Sports sent it over, it was already split to pieces. And, um, I mean, Wout van Aert must have just been incredibly strong today. Just the same as, same as Annemiek van Vleuten and the women's. They were sort of head and shoulders above, really. Well, he was in good company, wasn't he? So Formolo, David Formolo and Max Schachmann were, were second and third today. And they were among a, a select group from sort of 50 kilometres out, um, along with... Greg Van Avermaet and Alberto Bettiol um, and Jacob Fulsang, um, who was so close, obviously, to, to winning it last year. And then with 20 kilometres to go, everyone in the front six, it seemed, was, was, was having a dig, apart from Van Avermaet, who was keeping his cars very close to his chest. And then all of a sudden, six became three, became one. Brad, what did you make of it today? 
It was like no other Strada Bianca we watched, really. I mean, um, getting your head around the fact it's run on the 1st of August rather than March. You know, riders like Greg Van Avermaet, a lot of the early season is dependent on how, as a professional rider, you can cope through a winter. Whether it's a harsh winter, wherever you base yourself, whether you can stay healthy and not get ill, you know, get through the Christmas period without, you know, by ignoring your family and continuing to train and not overindulging and all those things, you know. Mm. Finishing the previous season in good shape and not to put too much weight on, having a shorter off-season and getting back into training means you start the racing season in better shape. This year has just been, that's all been wiped away and everyone's been in the same situation, the same boat. Aside maybe from Van Aert and the guys who maybe did you know a couple of cross races at the start of the season, including the World Championships, means they probably finished racing in February rather than October for most people. So... You know, it, it's different for everyone, but Greg Van Arvum, I imagine his last race would have been October sometime last year. He's normally, you know, doesn't really have much of an off-season, Greg, and, and trains for a Belgian winter, stays healthy and is, is there in Newsblad and those races early in the season. So, um, you know, the likes of Shackman, who we saw up there, who's more of a GC rider, isn't he? Mm. You know, they're now able to train in May, June, July in the higher mountains where there's no snow, so they can get better quality of training in, in the likes of Tenerife and wherever else. And it's just put a completely different dynamic on it. And, and and in some ways, it's brought riders that normally would be targeting stage racing later in the year, who have an early start of the year, which allows the likes of an Avermaet and that to shine in all these one-day races. The the GC riders to, to do the normal stage race preparation because the Tour de France is only four weeks away. And now they're on a higher level and it looks as though Greg's not going that well. But actually, other riders are fitter now because the Tour's only in four weeks' time. Mm. And... Philippe said at the start of the race today that he he's, doesn't want to be flying at, at the moment. You know, he's on in peak condition. We better bloody get on with it because the store's in four weeks' time. And it's just, I know he's lying. It means that he's not coped with the, the, the problems we've been under very well because he's not a rider that can train on his own. You know, he's, yeah. he's got lots of energy, likes being around people. He needs to race. For a rider who won his first race on January 29th last year in Argentina and didn't stop winning to the tour, he's not really the kind of rider who goes, well, you know, I don't, I don't want to be flying just yet. Um... So, you know, that's kind of his kind of excuse for saying, actually, I'm not going very well. And and it's just different for everyone, really. Guys like Alaphilippe, Gilbert, they just need to race all the time. And the guys that can train, Bernal, G, Froome even, even with Froome's accident last year, I expect those guys will be pretty good once the racing comes back. Mm. So it's just put a completely different dynamic on the on the whole thing. Even Sagan today, we didn't really see him much of him, did we? We saw him at one point about four minutes down in a small group. And... um I expect that that's going to carry on now. For even in things like Flanders and that, I mean, it's the Flanders after the tour, is it? Yeah, it's during yeah. the Giro, so it's quite late. So on. guys like Geraint Thomas coming off the Tour de France, I don't know if he's planning on doing that and that. But I mean, well, he might. Be, well, I mean, he also... could win Flanders. He's the type of rider who could win Flanders. He's won E three in the past and been. I think top... we'll see a lot of those guys. Do I mean, it's going to be that, that. I'd love to see Geraint Thomas step up in those two races. I mean, imagine winning the Tour de France and coming out and winning Flanders or Roubaix in a couple of weeks after that. What a season that It'll would be. It'll be amazing. Yeah. I'd love to see that. But the risk factor's I, taken. You know, a lot of the reason why exactly. those guys and don't do those races. that's why this season races. is just completely different. And if a Geraint Thomas on top form is going for Flanders or Roubaix, he's a better rider than Van Avermaet any day of the week when they're on form, as great as Greg is. It kind of goes against Greg that, whereas Geraint early season wouldn't be targeting that race, so it's one less person for someone like Van Avermaet to think about. So the classics guys, who are just classic guys, almost get washed away and look like they're not going that well. But it's not that. It's that they're probably as good as they've ever been, but they've got a whole new bunch of riders that wouldn't be on form normally at that type of year that have allowed to be now because of the way the calendar's set out. 
Dan, do we foresee then a, a, a group of GC riders who we wouldn't usually expect to see feature in some of the classics be uh, well, up there? Well, we'll wait and see if they feature, but certainly there's there's quite a few that have already stated that they're going to do them. I yeah. think Taddy Pogaccia said he's going to you, do the Tour of Flanders. Van Aert probably not doing San Remo, is that right? No, no, I think he, we, he we decided he that he is. Yeah. is yeah. In the end. Yeah. There's, there's yeah. definitely somebody that's missing next week, but I can't remember who it is now. But yeah, also Warren Barguil said he's going to do Paris-Roubaix. You know, because there's not that risk factor there that that, that is yeah. the end of the season, they can afford to go there and sort of think, well, if I crash, I've got a few months to recover before next season anyway. So you know, I think that's what puts a lot of those Even guys through, off I mean, in the first place. He probably underestimates just how good he would be in Roubaix. We watched that stage of the tour a few years ago. He was in the front group, wasn't he, towards the end? It was Luke Rowe in that, remember? A couple of years ago? Yeah. Oh, but, they, but, yeah. They, but they would have looked after him to that point. And so then they've got the power to do it again. Well, this is so what I mean. Not? And yeah. he's not got the risk factor. Yeah. The only thing that would maybe stop him is that the, the, how horrendous his crash was last year and he might not want to have another fall on you know, his pelvis or something. But um, it, it puts a lot of other riders in the frame that wouldn't normally be in the frame. Yeah. I mean, we, we'll come on to Froome shortly. Manny, who stood out for you today? I mean... For, so I think we, we were sat there at one point thinking we, we haven't seen anything from Matthew van, uh, van der Poel. And I, I think he went, he went into the, he would have been the favourite for a lot of people. He was the favourite, yeah. yeah. A favourite for a race he's never ridden before, which is crazy. Yeah, but I think that's the expectation we put on him, don't we? We always expect him to win now, don't we? In, well, it, in it, amazing it, fashion, like he did at Amstel. <laughs> he's favourite, he was favourite for today with the bookies. He was favourite for San Raymond next weekend that he's never done before. But that, like Brad said, is the expectation that, that's laid upon him based on what he's already done. Manny, sorry, we got excited about Van der Poel. No, <laughs> rightly so. I don't know why you're asking me, Graham, because like when I turned up, it was like 10k to go. So the selection has already been made. Yeah, but yeah. listen to Brad right now just talking about Peter Sagan and Julian Alaphilippe just, um, just proves why they, you know, I love listening to this podcast because that's just insight that you don't get anywhere else. Just oh, that whole thing about Julian Alaphilippe. I, I kid you know, I'm just sitting and I'm just like going, yeah, yeah. You know, and Peter Sagan is another rider that I would have been tuning in thinking he's going to perform. But what quite often is like those of us that are not in tune and don't really know their personalities, mm. what we don't know is that we don't see the fact that, you know, they are sociable creatures. And when you're put in this situation where it's like you're having to isolate and train by yourself, it, it's, you know, it delves a massive blow on your ability to train. Yeah. And so, as you mentioned, likes of Julian Alaphilippe struggling. Alaphilippe, Sagan, yeah, flabbergasted, flabbergasted. Yeah. Um, and I remember hearing the news that um, Philip Jabell was out riding on his bike, you know, during quarantine. Yeah. And he got caught doing it. Yeah. And so, you know, you got, you got to appreciate what the yeah. types of riders these individuals are. Yeah, how they've, how they've dealt with this, yeah. this extraordinary time, as they yeah, say. Yeah, and um, then you compare someone like Alaphilippe to Chris Froome. You know, Froome's come back from that crash. Yeah. I think uh, up to a period, a majority of his training was done on the home trainer. And I expect to see him to the fore in, in LAN. Don't, don't underestimate that he'll be up there. Because his mindset and his mentality, I mean, when we were at Sky and 80% of our training on training camps were done alone. We wouldn't train in a group. You know, so really? About, yeah, yeah. Time in the wheels was time not spent training. And in, in that was the mindset, you know. Mm. You used to go out and do small groups for five or six. So you're not sat at the back of 20 riders freewheeling. And the majority of it, you know, individual efforts up climbs, you'd go on your own two-minute gaps. When we go to Tenerife, it was always two-minute gaps. It was about pushing your own body through the air, you know, through the, and, and it was never about sitting on someone's wheel. And so they, the guys get used to doing that. Whereas the likes of Alaphilippe, they, they still manage, they still train sort of old school Belgium, racing up climbs, trying to drop your teammate, you know, and, and feeding off the, the morale you get from that and getting to the top and laughing about it and all that. And that's been taken away from a lot of riders. And, mm. and as I said, I said early in the year, someone like Geraint Thomas, 
he can do anything. He can do that style of training. He can do that. But Chris Froome was forced into a position where he'd had to do certain, you know, training in a certain way, and it probably suited him actually, yeah. because he he just gets a straight run now at the tour in the next couple of weeks, rather than going for all the early season races and the risking of crashing and illnesses in March. And you know, if, if he does the tour, if he does the tour, yeah, yeah. And we'll come to that. But there was more than one uh, Strada Bianchi race today. The women's race won by in outrageous fashion by Annemiek van Vluten. Mitchton Scott storming to another victory. The world champion became the first rider to retain the women's edition of another memorable race. Mavi Garcia, though, Dan, pushed her all the way in the end. But van Vluten had a lot of catching up to do, didn't she? She did, if the time gaps were correct that we were seeing yeah. on the screen. It, it appeared that she closed a three-minute, four-minute gap in, in the space of 20 kilometres. I mean, obviously, Garcia had been away for, for quite some time at that point. But Van Fleurten's just on another level, you know, completely head and shoulders above all of her competitors at the moment and, and has yet to lose a race as world champion. She, she's done five races now this year. She didn't do any after the world championships last year. She's won them all, and she hasn't just won them all. She's won them all solo. Yeah, and and from from the back too. So she she hunted. She not only hunted down the chase group, joined the chase group, but yeah. then then hunted down. It's Garcia. one of those races where you you know also because we don't get live pictures until reasonably late in both races. We yeah. don't know what's happened on the on the lead into the point at which we get live pictures. I don't actually know why Van Fleurten was behind when she was, but in the end, it didn't matter. Well, because she can, yeah. presumably. <laughs> Brad, what did you make of it today? Well, I mean, she's just completely dominant now, isn't she? Like I said, she hasn't lost a race in the World Champs jersey since she's since she won it. She's thirty-seven. She just seems to be getting stronger. She can win in any way she wants to. You know, I think she. Um, everyone knows she's going to attack, and everyone knows she's going to go solo. And you know, she could time trial. You know, she's world time trial champion, and no one can do anything about it. Mm. I don't see anyone at this stage that can really challenge her while she's in this form, and the season being as compact as it is you know, with all races coming thick and fast. So uh, Mariana Voss was back up there today, mm. fifth or sixth, wasn't she? Which was good to see. I think we'd lost, I thought we'd lost her a couple of years ago and that we were never going to see the Marianne Voss of the past again. But she, hopefully that's a good sign for her and I think she'll probably feed off that. And in some ways, she's probably the only one I can see really who has the class and the way she looks on the bike to, to maybe challenge Van Vluten in the next sort of few races really. Just because she's so clever, she's been around for such a long time. Mm. She's got a great sprint on her, and if she can, um, yeah, I think I could, you know, just with the way the races are structured now, I think she could probably be her biggest challenge. Uh, we've touched on him because you can't avoid him, Brad. But Chris Froome. Uh, let's start with the biggest news um, possibly over lockdown. What do you make of his transfer to Israel Startup Nation? Or his upcoming. I knew he was thinking of changing teams. Yeah, I I think we all did. It was sort of the worst kept secret in cycling, wasn't it? I think he needed to, really. I just think he's got a lot more in the tank, really, if he wants to. So he's he's 35 now. But I I just don't put anything past him, really. I think he could win another tour for me. What's that that five-time club? I still think... I don't know if he does want it. I mean, you might say that, but I don't know if he, you know, willing... But by changing teams, I think that's the biggest statement he's making that he mm. he does really. And I think, I think he will um, on his day. He still could surpass certainly Bernal and maybe Garin. Um But he's got a fifth tour win in him, and I just think that they were obviously thinking whether whether he was ever going to get that opportunity again at Ineos. And by changing teams, he's probably given himself the best opportunity to win that fifth tour 
Um, so I, I think it's a good thing. I know that they don't make decisions lightly, Chris and his team. So he will um, he would have put a lot of thought into it, and it would have been a brave move as well because mm. it's not there's no certainty with it. But I think um, I see it as such a positive thing, and that um, it means that he's really willing to go for that fifth tour win. What about from Dave Brailsford's uh, point of view? In what sense? In the sense of, so he's he's got a team full of GC riders, um, and particularly, so we're looking at the tour, Bernal, Thomas, and Froome, three, do not, three leaders don't go in to, to two, how, yeah. how we know they like to do it. Carapaz, what's his plans? Are they doing the Giro? Is, that his, is he going for yeah. this? I'd yeah. yeah, I'd imagine he's defending his Giro title. It's a funny one, isn't it? Because last year, Geraint was the defending champion, and, and Bernal was allowed to shine. I think had we had the stage to team last year completed, I think I think Bernard would have cracked and Geraint would have won the tour that day. Now, you'd have to say that because Bernal was allowed to win the tour last year with Geraint as defending champion, when he was good enough to win the tour last year, mm. that would apl- the same would apply to Bernal this year, that he doesn't get the automatic right <coughs> to defend the race. So Geraint is open to win the race this year, and I'm, I actually think Geraint will win the tour this year. Um, no question about it. I don't think there's an argument within that team for me. And how does Froome does Froome fit into that tour team? Um, I would I would guess that Chris Froome won't be at the level this year that it, we're good enough to win the tour. I think it might take another year, particularly with the lack of racing. But who knows with Chris? Mm. I won't put anything past him. But he does fit into the team for me. Yeah, I, I'd I'd take him purely on what he's done for that team. I think. He's been the face of that team for a number of years now. He's won four Tour de France's. I don't think you don't not take Chris Froome to that race. And if that's set out before, rather than going into it and kind of, you know, who could win this race, I think Chris would be the first to go in there and say, well, I'm just going to help these guys, really. I, don't, I, I, would, I would not not take Chris Froome to the Tour de France. For me, it's a two-pronged race between Garoyne and Bernal. But I'd... I would even go so far as to say, say that, I, look, we're riding for Grant Thomas at this race. Bernal had his chance last year and he took it. But I don't think it's a given that Bernal gets to defend his title, really, within that team. I think Grant Thomas played second fiddle last year to Bernal to help him win that tour. And you could say Bernal got a bit lucky with the weather last year and the, the, the stage that was cut towards the end of the race. But, yeah, I think it's a Grant Thomas race, but I would take fresh room any day of the week. Mm. He'd be first on the team sheet. You agree with that, Dan? I I can't wait to see whether he's taken to the tour or not. I mean, what struck me with the whole would transfer, you take him though, Dan? I, it's very hard to put yourself in that position because I take him because I'm watching it on TV and I want yeah. there to be a you know a, a, an inter-team scuff basically, yeah. <laughs> just for the entertainment of it. But I mean, what struck me was how you know obviously we kind of know this anyway that Brailsford can take any emotion away from decisions and stuff. And you know, there's this guy that has been their most successful rider by far since its inception in 2010 and, and won four tours, all the other races that he's won. But, you know, when Chris says, I want to be the sole leader at the Tour de France, he's like, well, no, you know, we've got two other guys that we need to have as leaders as well. I can't guarantee you that leadership position. And, and if you want to move on, move on. Yeah. It's mission clarity, I think, is the, the buzz phrase that Brailsford would use. Brad, did you get that feeling when... So you were 32 when you won the Tour, right? Yeah. Do you get that feeling when you were coming to that point that, okay, if I don't do this now in the next year or so, in the next couple of years, it's never going to happen for me. No, no. I didn't. I'd, I just worked on an 18-month programme from 11 to 12. I didn't know what was happening after the 1st of August 2012. Yeah. There was no, you know, maybe this has got to be the year. It was just, that was it. 
We just worked one race at a time. I didn't. And even even before that, with Garmin. Well, with Garmin, I didn't ever even think I'd be in, finished at all, let alone win the bloody thing. I mean, I was just. Um, it wasn't like that. It just all happened so quick. Mm. You know, I went from riding the Gruppetto with Dan one year to you know. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, I, I knew my chance was over. So suddenly finishing fourth. I was coming to that. I wasn't no, I gave it. up the track and progressed and finished fourth of the tour. I mean, it was like, it just happened overnight, you know, and yeah. I just never really thought like that. If anything, I thought I was just going to do this one and I don't care if I never ride another tour again. You know, I think that was what more 12 was like, really. You know, I hope I win it this year because I can't imagine, put, I can't imagine going through this again, being months at a time up a mountain and missing the kids and everything and... So I think that was the difference between you and Chris, wasn't it? It felt like there was like the sacrifice level of, of training and preparation for the tour, I think, was is, has been more for you than for... I think he makes the same sacrifices, but there's so much a, a part of his normal life that he's just very happy to continue making those those sacrifices year in, year out, which is what makes him almost completely different to any other rider out there at the moment. Yeah, mm. and he's got young kids as well. I mean, I had young kids, but, you know, they live in Monaco and... You know, it's um, my kids have started normal school by then. So I think by the time Chris's kids are old enough to go to school, they would have retired and settled wherever they are. Because I didn't want my career being um, put over the kids growing as you know socially and as adults, really. And I never saw the sacrifice big enough, bigger than the family. Um, so it was a case for me of like 2011. If I, I, I think I might have won the tour in 2011 if I hadn't crashed out, but I didn't. So it was all about the following year. It's like let's give it another shot and. By doing that, I knew I could probably win the race and I wouldn't have to worry about any other race after that. It wasn't like, right, I've got five years and let's hope I can win the Tour in five years. It was just, let's get this thing done and you never have to bloody go back to it ever again. That was more the attitude. Mm. And how, how was your head after the after the Tour and the Olympics? Because the next year you went to go and do the Giro, but it didn't ever Yeah, but that like... was just like spare of the moment. Like December, it was like, well, what are we going to do? Well, just side do the Giro. Yeah, do the Giro. It wasn't like, right, I want to win the Giro. And I said that publicly, but... It was like, right, am I going to get through the next two years and without poking me nose in the wind, really? That was more of it, because I knew Chris was going to be the leader of the tour and that. I actually wanted to go and help him try and win the tour, but ideally, if I don't go to a tour again, I won't be that bothered. So I tried to do, well, try and win the World Time Tour title, because I can train living in England and do that without going to Altitude. I never went to Altitude again after 2012. Cause you not never? No, I didn't want to spend three weeks at the top of the mountain. I wanted to be at home as much as possible. I could train for time trials at home. Win a world title, let's do the hour record, let's try and win Tour of California, let's try and win all these Tour of Britain, these other little races. I never went to another Grand Tour again after that Giro. Yeah. I think that's and I didn't biggest... even finish that Giro, I went home. No, I remember. I yeah. think that was the biggest change since I've been racing is that, you know, 10 years ago now, but back then you used to do sort of two or three weeks training camp at the start of the year and that was kind of it really. There weren't really mid-season training camps back then. So I, I, Again, it was what made it all the more remarkable that Froome's still as motivated as he is really that yeah. mm. you're away so much more now because it's not just the racing it's all the training camps at altitude in between I think Matt Heyman's talked about that as well about the difference between and why he ended up finishing his career in the yeah. end well, we'll see how he goes in uh, the route to Occitane this week alongside Amador Bernal Castro Hievo uh, Theo Gagan Hart Sivakov Van Baal um, so the only man really missing from the big guns is is Thomas how do you think Froome's going to go Graham at the uh, root doctor Tony I, I would be surprised if he hit the same form as Bernal I th I th to my mind Bernal has killed it over lockdown but we will see why, why did you say that so I think he's got the benefit of altitude first of all yeah. riding in Colombia I think he's just as driven as Froome and he's got 
for me, the massive advantage of not coming back from what should have been, or what would have been for most people, a career-ending injury. What um, about Geraint, though? What do you think? Just as good a chance as Bernard, if the road suits him. I thought, I mean, I thought Thomas's ride last year was almost more impressive than when he won the Tour because his yeah, preparation well, last year was horrific. Was amazing, mm. yeah. He did, hardly yeah. finished a race. He had a couple of injuries and yeah. a couple of illnesses. I think he'll be better this year. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's always a it always seems to be with G. The luck is not on his side. Yeah. All right, thanks, boys. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport. Thank you to our sponsor, Alaka Bicycle Insurance. Manny, thank you for joining us. Absolutely awesome to have you on. Uh, where can we follow you and the Black Cyclist Network on Regents Park. social media? <laughs> Apart from Regents Park, on social, where can we find you? You can follow us on the Black Cyclist Network on Instagram. It's all one word, Black Cyclist with an S. It's a plural and not singular. You can also follow... Actually, we just reached 10K um, um, followers on Instagram. So awesome. Um, you can also follow BCN Tweets. Um, you can join us on Facebook, Strava. And I think that's it. All right. Comprehensive. Thank you. <laughs> Dan, thank you again for joining us. Pleasure. Where can we find you on social media? At Daniel Lloyd One, generally. But, but yeah, follow the Black Cyclist Network. It's probably the best thing to do. Excellent. Uh, and Brad, as ever, at... So we go, is it? So we go. Still, yeah. so we go. Good. Uh, I should add that you can follow Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. We should also say thank you to our producer, Pete Burton. And finally, from me, Graham Wilgos, it's goodbye. If you've enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, share your thoughts, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. Brad, we'll be back next week for Milan San Remo. We will. We'll see you then. We will do. We have a bonus segment of the Bradley Wiggins show by Eurosport this week that we ran out of time for, but you almost certainly want to make time for. We'll drop it on your feed midweek, so make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.